great to be back this morning to open the Word of God together. I do want us to take our Bibles this morning and return our attention to uh, the study of God's Word in Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, we are continuing our study as it's being laid out by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 12 on how it is that we are to live in light of the mercy that God has poured out upon us who have been granted faith and saved through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And so as we focus our attention on this text this morning, I want us to bow for a word of prayer and just allow God to attend our time as well. Father, we thank you for this opportunity. This is a great privilege that we have to open your word together. I trust that we do not take it for granted. I trust that we approach this time as it is a privilege for not all people in this world are granted such a free privilege that we have in this country. And so we come, I trust, with seriousness in our hearts, with a reverence in our hearts and minds, with a thoughtfulness to understanding what you have for us and a knowledge and understanding that it will be the Spirit's illumination upon our hearts and our minds that helps us to walk obedient to it. So attend to our time, honor your name through it, and may our lives be a blessing to you from it for the sake of our Savior Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Christian living. Obedience in our lives to God. Right, The way we live as Christians is a testimony. Let's just get that right in our minds as we start, as we think about this again, as we remind ourselves this morning of this text that we are in with the Apostle Paul. Our lives as Christians is a testimony. It is a testimony, not simply to us as Christians, as a confirmation of the genuineness of faith, but our lives are also a testimony to others concerning the good news of Jesus Christ. In fact, the Bible declares that the Christian is to live in such a way that their lives are a picture of the gospel. The Apostle Peter reminds us in 1 Peter chapter 2 that we are to keep our behavior excellent among the Gentiles. We've studied that passage before. The word excellent is a very interesting word in the original language. It is the word kalos. It's used some 101 times in the New Testament. And it means that which is of good quality or a good disposition. Sometimes it is referred to as that which is fertile or rich or good ground, as the word is described in Matthew chapter 13 and verse 8 in describing the soils on which the seed has been sown. The good soil is the kalos soil. It's profitable. Matthew 18 uses that word there. Something that possesses moral excellence as it's used in John chapter 10 and verse 11 where it speaks of Jesus Christ. Moral excellence. What is good and right. That which is beneficial. That's the idea. That's the the rounding out, if you will, in your mind. That's putting flesh on the simple word that is excellence in First Peter chapter 2, in keeping our behavior excellent. So in First Peter chapter 2 and verse 12, we are then, when we think about it in that way, we are to keep our behavior beneficial. We are to keep our behavior uh, rich and profitable in the sight of others. So that in the eventual case, as it is as a Christian, in the eventual case, when we are slandered, when we are accused of being evildoers, much like we read this morning in Psalm 41, 
when we are accused of that, the very ones who are accusing us may, on account of our kalos deeds, on account of our good deeds, they might glorify God when He comes. I think that's an apt description of living in light of the mercy of God, as Paul exhorts us here in Romans chapter 12. If you want a commentary in one sense, a short commentary on Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12 is a good commentary on that. This is an apt description of living a life in the mercy of God, a life that is adorning the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when we live that way, the testimony of the gospel is clearly seen in us. It's visible. And in doing so, not only are we worshiping God, but others are compelled to worship God also. And so, in Romans chapter 12, this is the doctrinal truth that we find ourselves in. This is the pool in which we are swimming here in our study. In all the previous 11 chapters, we were clearly taught about our previous condition before God and what God did to cure that. A condition in which every person before salvation is guilty. A condition in which all of us, no person, no person who has ever walked on the face of the earth has ever been one who has a valid excuse as to why they do not believe what God has said and what God has done. There is no valid excuse. We are all guilty before a holy God. God has given ample proof of not only his own existence as we look outside and we see his invisible attributes being clearly seen through what he has made in spite of the fact that unsaved scientists try to figure out how it all came to be. God has given clear testimony of it. He has given clear testimony also of his mercy. And so no one has an excuse. And so therefore, we clearly know our previous condition. And in spite of that fact that we all, even prior to salvation, deny it, we know that the only way into a right standing with God, the only way to be before God and not be consumed by His wrath is to repent of our sin and to embrace Jesus Christ as a substitute for our penalty before God. This is the only way to God. And so Paul says here in Romans chapter 12 that it's on that foundation. That it's on an understanding of that foundation, an understanding of God's mercy that has been expressed toward us, having been saved by His grace through faith in Jesus Christ, that now the only right response is a life of worship a life of offering ourselves as living sacrifices, as he said in verse 1. Holy, acceptable to God. Lives which are set apart, lives which are approvable, if you will, by God. We are a people given to God in order to be used as God desires to use us, fully submissive to His will, just as Christ was fully submissive to the will of the Father, obedient to His commands, and therefore we are to be consistently and constantly renewing our minds. He says in verse 2, Don't be conformed to the world. Don't be like the world. Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. You are to be conformed. You are to be renewing your mind. Renewing your mind. As we heard in Sunday school this morning in the adult Sunday school, thinking on the things of God, thinking on the Word of God, constantly meditating and pondering like Psalm 1 says, day and night is the blessed man who meditates on the Word of God all the time. saturating ourselves in and with the truth of God's Word so that we experientially know what His will is from His Word. And so it's in light of all of that that we have been looking at these commands in verses 9 through 21. We've covered several of them already. 
We already know that we are not to be playing games when it comes to our love for God, right? The scriptures tell us, love God with your whole heart, with your whole soul, with your whole mind. It is to be a a fullness of a love for God, and it's only from that that we will ever begin to rightly love our neighbor as ourselves. And so we have this fullness, this directness of loving God without hypocrisy, he says in verse 9. Love without hypocrisy, love without play-acting, love without fakery. Not only are we not to be hypocritical toward one another, but as we learn more importantly, our love for God is to be without hypocrisy. In other words, our love to God is to be reflected by the genuineness of our obedience to Him. A genuineness that is born in the heart. A genuineness that is reflected in the outwardness of our mind, our our thinking, our inner man. And therefore, we must hate every vestige of evil, as it says here. Abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. Hate evil itself, not just the doing of evil, but hate evil itself, the very concept of evil in all of its forms. We hate evil when we are clinging to that which is good, agathos, good. Different word than what we find in 1 Peter chapter 2. This is agathos, a synonym, but even more of an emphasis on the quality the quality of what is good, speaking of the things of Christ Himself, that which is by quality what is absolute goodness. And so we know that what is good here is the very nature of the testimony of God Himself in it. Cling to that good. That which reflects godliness. And then, of course, we looked at verse 10 and our devotion to one another, which is seen in how we love one another. That we are to be personally fulfilling this by individually leading the way in giving honor to one another. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love, giving preference or give preference to one another in honor. And, of course, Paul came to verse 11, and the whole fact of not being lazy in our service. It's easy to be lazy. It's the tendency of the flesh. The flesh wants the easy way. It's the the way of the wide road, if you will. But if we will rely on the Spirit, knowing that what is accomplished by us is not us at all, but the Spirit within us, the power of the Spirit. If we rely on that, we serve. No matter what happens to us, no matter what it looks like, no matter how much accolade we might get or how little accolade we might get, we just don't lag behind. We just serve because we love God and we love His people. Last time we were here, we heard about rejoicing. Rejoicing through perseverance and prayer in whatever circumstance God allows in our lives. In verse 12, we rejoice in hope. And all along, all along as we have been walking through this, we have been continually reminded ourselves and being reminded in our own hearts of what verse 1 and 2 says. The condition in which we are now and in which we forever reside. We are in the condition of living under the mercy of God. So all of this obedience... All of this ability to offer ourselves as living sacrifices to God, the willingness, the desire within us with a willingness to do what it is we have already been commanded to do in verses 9 through 12, are commands that we will rightly follow when we are grasping our position as God's people, when we grasp the fact that we live under the mercy of God, that we deserve nothing. But it's not about us. It's about God. It's about His glory, regardless of what it costs us. And so if we are not understanding that, then we will have a hard time with each one of these commands. 
Because if it were not for the mercies of God, we would still be in the world without hope and without God. That would be our position. We cannot get into the mercies of God through some activity on our own. It is a God doing. But because of His mercy, we have been delivered from the world, and we have been brought into the kingdom of His dear Son. And we have been equipped, we have been given, we have been given the seal of that transaction, the Holy Spirit, who is the seal of our inheritance in Jesus Christ, the power of God that leads us, as it says in the Gospels, into truth. So that we can now and ought to desire to live the way that Paul is exhorting us to live. So all of that, just as a way of background, so that we know where we've been, we know where we are, Paul comes to verse 13. This next exhortation. And he says in verse 13, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. In the previous verse, in verse 12, we were reminded that the Christian life is filled with difficulties. We're to be rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted through prayer. We know that trouble comes as a Christian. The the, the Christian life is a troublesome life here on this earth. The world hates Christ. And so we are reminded there of persecutions. We are reminded of trials. We are reminded of difficulties, and we learned that our view of the world has to be accurate. Our view of the world has to be accurate. Sometimes we have the wrong view of the world as to its condition, as to its final destination. And if we are going to be rejoicing in hope, then we have to have the right perspective. We have to have God's perspective on the world. What is going to be and how is the world now in reference to the holiness of God? This very philosophy has already crept into the church in a wrong way, in evangelicalism, the wrong view of the world. In fact, it has come through the lie of what is being touted today as the social gospel. The social gospel. This is just one, one way. This particularly being emphasized in the area of missions and evangelism the social gospel. The idea is that if we can improve the physical lives of people, if we can go out and do some kind of social kind of activity, that then the door may be open for the spread of the gospel. In other words, it's a preemptive kind of precursor. It's, it's something we must do in order to, to make the, the receptivity of the gospel more helpful. One missionary has written with concern about this issue, Dr. Joel James. He's been a missionary in Africa for more than two decades, and he's watched this philosophy and its devastating effects within that country and when it comes to the true gospel ministry. And I just want to read a portion of what he's said so that we get this idea in our minds that that helps understand what Paul is talking about here. Here's what he says. He speaks of the infiltration of the social gospel with these words. Quote, evangelical missions in Africa is changing. Or more accurately, it has already changed. In the past, the bulk of the theologically conservative missionaries in Africa came to do church planting and leadership training. But no longer. Today, many of the new missionaries being sent are focused on social relief with the church tacked on as a theological addendum. By all appearances, there has been a mega shift in evangelical missions away from church planting and leadership training towards social justice or social action. What we used to do, we aren't doing anymore. In fact, missions agency representatives who visit the campuses of Christian colleges in the United States to recruit new missionaries report that the compass needle of student interest is clearly swinging away from gospel proclamation toward medical relief, orphan care, digging wells, 
It's no surprise, he says, the influential missional voices currently dominating the evangelical conversation about missions are promoting a new kind of mission, a mission of peace, social justice, or the gospel of good deeds and human flourishing. And while few of the better authors and speakers emphasize the church and the preaching of Christ crucified for sinners, across the board, a categorical shift is em- in emphasis is unmistakable. And it appears that the new generation of evangelicals, that would be us, has bought in. Churches keen to support their enthusiastic young missionaries often loosen the purse strings, whatever the theological significance or insignificance of the mission. And market-sensitive missions agencies, having noted the change, are working their images to accommodate or reworking their images to accommodate the new Peace Corps mentality. As a result... The evangelical church in the West is commissioning and sending a generation of missionaries to Africa and the world whose primary enthusiasm is for orphan care or distributing medicine or combating poverty or other social action project. For the most part, these new missionaries value the church, but in many cases they seem to view the church primarily as a platform from which to run and fund their relief projects. And in a surprising number of cases, their local church involvement is nominal, unquote. That's the tragedy of what's taking place just in one area. It's really a telling expose Just one branch of the evangelical tree, if you will. Just one part of what's going on in this social gospel movement. And listen, brothers and sisters in Christ, listen. That is not the task for Christians. That is not the view of the world that we are to have. We must not be mistaken. In this world, as Christians, we will have trouble. We live in a world in which the only cure for mankind is a regenerated heart. A gospel that speaks to the regenerating power of Jesus Christ. We live and we proclaim that gospel. And when we do, we will face our own personal tribulations in this world. Paul is saying here in verse 13, reminding us that we are not the only ones who are going to face trouble. We're not the only ones here in our own individual lives, here in the world in which we live, the little place of sphere of influence that God has placed us by His sovereign hand. We're not the only ones who are subject to trouble as believers all over the world, all over the terra firma, all over this grand planet that God has hung in His majestic galaxy. We have other brothers and sisters in Christ who are facing trouble. Why? Because they are obedient to the command of Christ. Obedient to the command to preach the Word of God in season and out of season. They are preaching the gospel. And simply because they proclaim Jesus Christ and Him crucified, they are in trouble. And so Paul is reminding us of our responsibility to them and how we are to help them faithfully endure those hostilities. That's what he's reminding us of here in Romans chapter 12 and verse 13. And notice, notice that he makes that statement by giving us two statements in this verse. And they are in balance of one another. He says, contributing to the needs of the saints, and in balance with that, practicing hospitality. So we could even say that practicing hospitality, like the other verses, elaborates on or balances the first exhortation. So I want to begin, as Paul does, let's just begin with the first phrase. Let's begin with contributing to the needs of the saints. Contributing is an interesting word because we hear a lot today about efforts in this country for contribution. 
We especially hear it at infinitum when it comes to the holidays, which we just passed. We hear about contributing to this or contributing to that or helping out with this. Everywhere you go, someone is asking and even attempting to implore you to give something. Maybe you did just that when you heard it at the holidays. Maybe you walked out of the store and you saw the little bell ringer there with the red kettle, and I'm not putting down the Salvation Army and ringing the bell. But you exit the store and maybe you dropped your loose change in that little kettle for a contribution. Maybe you did that. Maybe you did as we in our own home do often on a Saturday. We collect things from the garage and other places in the house because here in America we are accumulators. We accumulate a lot of stuff. Our homes seem to be storage units. And we accumulate that stuff and we make a contribution to the local Goodwill. It's a normal way in which the world and most of us might describe the word contribute. We contribute. But that idea is not the full idea that Paul is making here in verse 13. Because the full meaning carries the idea of entering into. Entering into. In other words, to contribute the way that Paul is speaking of here is entering into the difficulty with the person or the entity or whatever it is. I'm entering into the difficulty. So when Paul says, contributing to the needs of the saints, what the Spirit of God is saying through that word is enter into fellowship with the need. Enter into fellowship with the need. Sometimes in your scriptures, maybe some of you have the word share there. Share. Share. Sometimes it's translated that way. For example, Romans 15, verse 27. They were pleased to do so. Paul talking about other saints, other people. They were pleased to contribute. And they are indebted. For if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, talking about those who preach the gospel, they are indebted to minister to them also in material things. The word there for shared is the same word that we find here for contributing. Galatians 6 6, the one who is taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches. Participate, enter into fellowship with. Philippians 4.15, you yourselves also know, Philippians, that the first preaching of the gospel after I left Macedonia, no church shared, there's the word again, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. He's commending the Philippians for how they shared, how they contributed in this way to the ministry that he was doing. 1 Timothy 5, verse 22, do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily, and thereby share, thereby enter into responsibly the activity of their sins. Don't, don't place hands on someone too hastily and thereby share responsibility for the sins of others. Keep yourself free from sin, Paul said to Timothy. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, that is you and I, humanity, he, that is Christ himself, likewise also partook of the same, so that through the death he might render powerless him who had power of death, that is the devil. Christ shares in our humanity. He entered into Philippians chapter 2. He, he took on humanity. He entered into Second John, verse 11, for the one who gives him a greeting, talking about those who are outside the church, those who have left us, those who don't speak the church, those who are false teachers, the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. So it runs again, but I think we get an idea just from that little sampling of verses how this word is being used. They show us that as Christians... We need to, we need to have, have a sense of feeling. I mean, this is a real experiential idea. Feel the burden of others as if it's our own burden, just like the Philippians did with Paul. Feel the burden as if we are in the hardship with them. 
You see the difference, I hope. You see, when I go to Goodwill, when I give something to Goodwill, I just go, I pull up the car, I open the back, I take out the stuff, the guy says, thank you, I close the thing, and I drive off. I don't see any reality of burden. I'm just donating, I'm just contributing to the pile. There's no sense in which... I have a burden of another person. I may feel good about my contribution. I may have a good sense upon myself. Even it might help someone down the road. But I have no partnership with them in the hardship. So this is what Paul means here when he exhorts us to contribute. In light of the mercies of God, in light of who we are as a living testimony to proclaim the excellencies of God, we are to contribute. We are to enter into. Enter into what? Enter into what? Well, verse 13 tells us, enter into the need. Enter into the need. Well, what is that? What is the need? When you're doing your Bible study, these are the kind of questions you need to ask the, of your author. What, is, what are you saying? Well, need here is their necessity. That's what the need is, their necessity, and specifically their basic necessity, their basic need. And this is where we have to be careful because we are not being exhorted to contribute indiscriminately. We're not being exhorted here to just contribute indiscriminately. In other words, he's not telling us as Christians that we should enter into something going on, some project, some, some philanthropic activity, simply because someone has a desire for that, or simply because it might be someone's desire. He's not telling us to do that. Desires are great. We all have them. We have desires for things. We all have wishes. We all have wants. But here we are being exhorted to enter into fellowship with their needs. And so the distinction is very important for us to think about. The distinction is important because we are still here on the earth. We are in this earthly realm. The flesh is still present. Sinful desires are still there. And sometimes we're not always clear. Sometimes it's somewhat foggy at times to know the difference between an absolute need and a want or a desire. But there's a huge difference between something being a need of necessity, a need of life, and wanting more than we need. There's a huge difference, and we, we're, not, we're not ignorant people. We know that. And so what Paul is saying here is that we are to be contributing to them, to others, when they truly are in need. Truly are in need. And notice just who it is that we are to do this with. Contributing to the needs of who? The saints. Of the saints. These aren't, these aren't words just pulled out of the air. This is Paul being led by the Holy Spirit to teach us just how it is we are to think. All right, these are the needs of the saints. Well, we have to ask ourselves, who are the saints? Because that's confusing today sometimes in some places. Saints in the Word of God is the holy ones. The holy ones, the true believers, the hagias. Those who are true believers. So listen, think about this. Paul in Romans chapter 12 is not talking about us giving to some kind of organization. He's not talking about some philanthropic organization that we give money to and feel good and we can consider ourselves contributors. No, he's talking about entering into real life troubles of other believers. That's what he's talking about. Entering into the real-life troubles and struggles and difficulties and real needs of other believers with the true saints, he says. 
And if we don't know who saints are clearly, we can go all the way back to chapter 1 and go all the way through to chapter 11 and say, okay, that's what a saint is, someone who was this and now they're this because God has saved them. Right? This isn't the lie of the Catholic Church that makes people saints because they think they've done something miraculous and it's unprovable and they, they haven't done it anyway. This not, we venerate people who we call saints. No, this is true believers. This is actual saints. Those who have been saved by grace through faith in Christ, the children of God. And so Paul is saying, in light of your position in God, light of the mercy of God. Now that He saved you, in light of that, in light of the fact that He showered His mercy upon you, then live as a sacrifice to Him. Live as a sacrifice to Him and be looking for and entering into the trouble of those saints who have real needs. By the way, this principle is throughout the Old Testament or in the New Testament. But I, I just want us to turn really quickly to one section where we see it so clearly. Second Corinthians chapter eight. Second Corinthians chapter eight. Some of you go, Yeah, I was waiting for you to turn there because you know this passage. Second Corinthians chapter eight. Paul, once again, exhorting that church that we studied 1 Corinthians, they had so much trouble, so much difficulty, strife going on. They're thinking about God. They're thinking about Christian living was so backwards on so many different things. It really was an issue of love. It really was an issue of love. That's what the whole exhortation of chapter 13 is about. They really weren't loving God with their whole heart, which is why they weren't loving each other. And that's why Paul talks about all that. Second Corinthians, they're even having trouble still. They've doubted Paul. They've doubted his calling and all these kinds of things. He's had to defend himself throughout this. And he comes to chapter 8, wanting to exhort them on the issue of this reality. It's a reality of contributing. Contributing in the right way. And he says, brethren, verse 1, we wish to make known to you the grace of God, which has been given to the churches in Macedonia. And we have to recognize one thing just from that one verse, that contributing to the needs of the saints is a measure of the grace of God. Notice what he says. I want to make known to you the grace of God, which has been given to the churches in Macedonia. So he's talking about the grace of God. This is an outflow of the grace of God. We stand in grace. We are Christians who have been saved by grace. And when we live this way, it's the outflow of grace. This is the gift of God's grace. What is that? Well, these churches in Macedonia with this gift of God's grace given to them, that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy, remember verse 11 or 12, we rejoice in tribulation, their abundance of joy, they had great affliction, and yet their rejoicing, their abundance of joy, and their deep poverty, these are people who seemingly, at least from our understanding, had very little, had, had less than most people. Their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. And we just, we just don't think like that. We think the people who are to be contributing to the needs are the people who have means. And yet here we see a, a, a a group of churches, because it's plural in verse 1, a group of churches in, in the north who, out of abundance of joy and deep poverty, there was an overflow in the wealth of the liberality. They had a sincerity in spite of their economics. And so what did they do? Paul says, I testify that according to their ability... What was their ability? They had nothing, really. They were poverty. And beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord. In other words, no one com was compelling them. No one was sitting over them, ringing a bell and saying, gee, you're not going to be Christian if you don't give. None of that. They're simply just out of a joy in Christ, out of an understanding of the mercy of God over them. They were overflowing with this reality and 
according to it and beyond that they gave. In fact, they even, verse 4, begged us with much entreaty for the favor. That's the same word in verse 1 for grace. They begged us that they could bestow, be in participation in support of who? The saints. The saints. And this, Paul's blown away. We hadn't expected that. They first gave them themselves. There it is. Don't be lazy. Serve. They first gave them themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. You see the outflow of that? You see what's going on in the heart of these people? The heart is the realization of what they were without God, and now God has graciously brought them in, and so they just opened their lives. They said, Lord, whatever it is, whatever the ministry is, it doesn't really matter. We, we don't really have anything, Lord. You've granted us your sovereign hand of where we are economically, socially, and otherwise. We really don't. But we're just going to say, we're yours to use. Use us however you want. And Paul comes along, and they beg for the opportunity to be a part of it. Just let us be a part of contributing. Just let us be a part. Now go back to Romans chapter 12 with that in your mind. Because this is what we're to be like. We're to have the Macedonian attitude. Entering into the trouble of others in order to meet the real need because they are simply our brothers and sisters in Christ. Because they're our brothers and sisters in Christ. Not because we know them, not because they're our own relatives, not because we've seen them before, none of that, just because they're our brothers in Christ. Paul says, in light of the mercy of God, present yourselves as an offering to God, a living sacrifice to God, holy and acceptable, which is your spiritual service of worship. And one of the ways that's carried out is through you entering into the needs of the saints. And then he says, to balance that out quickly in verse 13, the other half of the verse, practicing hospitality. Practicing hospitality. What is that? What is hospitality? There's been a lot of books written on it. But I can assure you of this, hospitality is not a spiritual gift. Not a spiritual gift. Sometimes you read that. Sometimes you hear nice authors, people who have written a lot of books on the spiritual gifts, and they say, it's a, I, I don't have the spiritual gift of hospitality, you'll hear people say. Well, it's not a spiritual gift, folks. Some people shy away from it because that's a wrong thinking. In fact, it's not a gift. You know what it is? It's a command. It's a command. It's a command to follow. Hospitality. You know what it means in its rudest form? Love strangers. Love strangers. Love strangers. This happened all the time in the first century church. Someone would go from one town to another town. A Christian would go from one place to another place. It was always dangerous to do that because they had nothing. Usually to follow Christ, it cost you everything. It cost you your family. It cost you your social standing. It cost you your economics. And the only place that was viable to be with was the church. And so you'd go, and you'd go to a church. Nobody knew you there. You'd walk in the doors. Nobody knew you. You didn't know anybody, but this hospitality to strangers was so necessary. This was the need. And so he says, love strangers. Have a love for strangers. And again, Paul's not talking about anybody. He's not seeing, saying, hey, you see some guy walking down the street, you're driving your car, somebody's got his thumb out, whatever, just pick him up, it's no worry. He's not saying that. Not here. That's not what he's talking about here. As if, we're, as if we are to just simply do that with all people. No. Here he means, again, the saints. With the saints, Christians. Christians we may not know personally. Other brothers and sisters, we are to be pursuing, loving those people. Pursuing a love for the stranger. In fact, here's how it states in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 1 and following. Let brotherly love continue, he says. 
Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Why? Because some have entertained angels unawares. God may be testing you. You don't know who it is. It might even be an angel. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, right? Enter into it. And those who are mistreated, remember them. Since you also are in the body and in the home, let marriage be held among you in honor. Let the marriage bed be undefiled. Why? Because God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. For he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Hebrews 13. That's the idea. Entering into, contributing to, practicing hospitality. So how do we put this practice, how do we put this command into practice? How do we do that? Well, first, first, don't forget your place before God. That's the first place to start. Don't forget who we are before God, right? Don't forget verses 1 and 2 of chapter 12. Don't forget that. I'm going to continue to drive us back to that because that's exactly what this is built on. Don't forget verses 1 and 2, because when we understand that, then this practice, the practice of these essentials becomes natural. It just becomes the outflow of our life. When we understand, I'm under the mercy of God, I, I wouldn't have anything I have, I wouldn't be where I'm at, I wouldn't do anything. If it wasn't for the mercy of God, then I can, I can do these things. I can love my brother and sister in Christ no matter what. I can give to them, I can share with them as long as it's real needs. So that's the first thing. Don't forget who we are before the Lord, what we have in God. We stand. We, it's because of the mercies of God. That's the first thing we do in putting this into practice. But secondly, we cannot forget what we've learned in verse 5. Can't forget what we learned in verse 5. What do we learn? So we who are many are one body in Christ. And therefore... We're individual members of one another. In other words, there's a vital link. We're not isolated people as Christians. We can't just operate out there by ourselves, doing our own thing, ah, separate, doesn't really matter. No, we're, we're, we're linked. We are one body. We are, when one part is hurting, we all are hurting. It's not just when someone is physically hurting that we're all come together and rally. No, it's any kind of hurting. When prayer requests go out for someone hurting, we ought to be immediately in our minds and hearts going to prayer for that person because we ought to be entering into that with them. When they hurt, we hurt. Paul's going to say this. He's going to say this a little letter, right? Weep with those who weep. Rejoice with those who rejoice in verse 15. We're one body. It's because of that that we are to be contributing to the needs of the saints. It's because of that that we're to be practicing the love of strangers, because we're one. It's as if a long-lost brother who I didn't know was my brother came to my house and said, Hey, brother, I need to love that stranger, because they are my brother. They are my sister. And then thirdly, thirdly, we need to remember specifically from verse 13 that this exhortation is not for us to simply participate in some general philanthropy. It's not what he's talking about. We can do that. We can do that. We have the freedom in the Lord to do that. It's not sinful to give to just any organization. It's not so don't, don't stop giving to goodwill if you have stuff. In fact, get rid of some of that stuff. But there is here this principle of Christian to Christian. This is Christian to Christian. In fact, Galatians 6.10, this is what it is. This is Galatians 6.10 in practice, really. It says this, so then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. There's the general principle, right? Don't stop that. We need to do good to everybody. 
but especially to those who are of the household of faith. So as you turn the TV on and you're watching some nonsense program, because our mind likes to do that from time to time, and we allow ourselves to do that, and you see the request for famine relief come across, or you see the sad animal with the brown eyes and the Sarah McLaughlin song start playing. Whatever kind of relief comes before us all the time, right? The world argues... The world even chides us as Christians, trying to guilt us that we must be involved in all of those kinds of general requests, or we're not really loving people. And yet here, Paul is exhorting us, and we might say, and we might know, and really understand this is God exhorting us that our business is to look to Christians, other Christians, because we understand the world. We understand where they're going, and all of the social justice and social programs in the globe are not going to save them. The only thing that saves them is the gospel. And there are true believers in all of those other places who are suffering because of the gospel, and we are to help them. We're to help them. They have the priority. And sadly, they are oftentimes the most neglected, but they have the priority. So in essence, just to encapsulate this, love God without hypocrisy, right? Love God without the mask, not a play actor, and thereby love your brother as yourself. Love your hurting and needy brother in other places. Enter into fellowship with them. Enter into fellowship with all the saints who are in need. Seek after a love for strangers. Practice hospitality. You know, some of us here in this church, even on a, on a general level, we've been in this church together for a long time, and yet we know each other from afar and from a distance. But we're really strangers with one another. It would do us well to practice hospitality with one another. To love those strangers. Because they're a part of your family. Practice hospitality. And when we do, the Lord's going to be pleased and the world will see a testimony of Jesus Christ. That's what they'll see. Well, verse 14 changes the emphasis. Changes the emphasis from what we do to how we react. To how we react. We'll start to look at that next time. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you again for our time this morning. Thank you that you are so, so wise. So wise. Lord, we just, we truly just want to reflect you, reflect who Christ is. We don't want to be seen by the world in any other way than to adorn the gospel, the true gospel. So help us to ponder these things, to meditate on this truth, to be entering into the needs of the saints, wherever that may be, whether it's in our own family or across the globe, loving strangers, so that others outside, even if they slander us, would see our good deeds and through that glorify you. And so, Lord, we praise you for this exhortation. Help us to put it into practice. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.